Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, regardless of whether you're a full-time real estate investor, a part-time real estate investor, or a real estate investor that is just getting started and you haven't even acquired your first property, I think it's important for you to know where the real estate market is. In other words, what is going on with the housing market at the macro level and at the micro level, meaning the local level, you know, the market you live in, the market you're investing in, or where you're thinking of investing in, or maybe where you have invested and you are potentially looking to expand in that market or sell property in that market, do a tax deferred exchange into other markets. These are all factors that you need to think about. And I'll give you an example here. If you're looking at a market and there are more buyers than there are homes for sale, you're essentially in a seller's market. And what does that mean? You have to consider that, that prices are probably going up. It's an appreciating market. There might be competitive bidding situations. You may not be getting the best deal. You might be in a situation where if you really want to invest in that market, you might be paying at or above market value. Maybe rents are being compressed and you're not going to get the same rent to price ratio, that rent to value ratio that you would ideally like to have. And that forces you to look into another market. So this is just one of many, many considerations. These are the conditions that exist both at the national level and the local level and even at the regional level. So there are people out there who I definitely want to get on the show, one of which is today. And these are people that study the markets and they study data and they talk to builders and they talk to lenders and people in the industry. And they look at market cycles and real estate cycles. They look at where things are at, where there's demand. They look at demographics to see who's coming up, like the millennials, and maybe who is making a shift, potentially the baby boomers. So these are all things that help you become a more informed real estate investor and a business person. And if you are going to be in real estate investing, these are things that you need to consider. And so my guest today is going to be talking about these important factors and metrics that we should be looking at as real estate investors. It's my pleasure to welcome Ivy Zellman to the show. Ivy is the CEO and founder of Zellman & Associates LLC, a company she founded back in 2007. Her firm leverages housing market expertise, extensive surveys of industry executives, and rigorous financial analysis to deliver proprietary research and advice to global institutional investors. Her team is widely respected for its unbiased views, depth of data and knowledge, and a willingness to offer counter-consensus opinions when necessary. And that's why I wanted her on the show. So Ivy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you on. You've been doing research for many, many years. You have a very interesting background. I like the fact that you provide some interesting perspective on the housing market, the direction we're going, demographics, interest rates, all kinds of neat stuff that you put out in a, a bi-weekly report called the Z Report, which you know we can certainly talk about during this episode. But let's quickly start off with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself or your background so our listeners have some perspective of who you are and where you're coming from? Sure. Well, I don't know how interesting it is. It's pretty boring, actually. I've been <laughs> a housing equity analyst for almost 30 years. So 
what that in layman terms means is I've been studying the U.S. residential housing market for most of my adult life and have been really fortunate to have worked with two large firms that were great to me. Uh, Solomon Brothers is where I uh, started after graduating from night school. I went to undergraduate at night and took me six years to finally get through it and went to Solomon Brothers and then actually went to Credit Suisse for a decade and then started my own firm, as you indicated, in 2007. And so it's been a concentrated journey. And I also had three kids along the way too, (laughs) which by the way, was a lot harder. They're a lot harder than working and calling housing markets. You're a very busy woman. That's what it tells me. So you have a very broad background and perspective, which is great for what our listeners want to hear. And so let's kind of just start off with the general and broad. And this is a very common question, something that I kind of have issue with when I hear a question of this broad, and and that is, where are we in the housing cycle? I know that's just such a broad question. And I find that there are mixed opinions on this. So what's your take and your perspective on that question of where we are in the housing cycle? Well, if we're talking about the new construction market, I think it's a little bit different than just in general residential real estate, but I feel like the home price appreciation that the overall countries enjoyed off of the 2011 trough, you know, we've been now seeing home prices appreciate for six years at above average clip. Mm -hmm. So it feels like the home price inflation is at a later part of the cycle than on the volume and transaction side. I think that there's different dynamics, but pricing historically has followed strong unit growth. And in this cycle in 2012, prices just took off. And so we've had very strong price appreciation and volumes were slower to pick up. And today the United States is actually um, at a deficit for shelter. We believe that we're building well under what we need to supply incremental households and those homes that are being demolished that need to be replaced. So there's a shortage for actual residential units, but pricing is really been at an elevated level, given very constraints around the availability of residential real estate. Yeah. And I've heard that we're producing somewhere around 750,000 units per year, and we actually need closer to 1 million. Is that in line with what you know? If you're referring to single family homes, we're probably a little closer, like 850,000. We're also adding to that, call it 400,000 multifamily units. So we're actually closer to million two. But we have historically looked at a normalized housing market in that one and a half plus that we need based on household formations plus the demolitions I mentioned. So formulaically, we're at about a 20 to 25 percent deficit to what would be normal supply. And so that is really 100 percent on the residential single family side of the market. Multifamily, we think we're actually a little bit above normal, about 15 percent above normal. Wow. How long has that been going on for? Because if you compound that year after year, that's a tremendous pent-up demand for housing. Well, I think coming out of the cycle, uh, builders would generally call it shell-shocked. You know, they were six feet under, nearly dead and buried, and (laughs) certainly didn't have the capital to access, nor did they have the confidence that they could build and, and see the type of absorptions and overall pricing that would give them the returns to warrant the employment of that capital. Mortgages were really tight, so they didn't think the consumer could get a mortgage. So there were a lot of headwinds that kept them more cautious. So we really saw what they were willing to build was really just what they had in already their portfolio. That was what I like to call it straight down the fairway, where they knew the consumer was maybe more fluent, it was closer in better locations. And they were really cautious on building in what we call sort of the exurbs, emerging suburbs, where people have to drive to qualify. And that was also met with 
a lot of trepidation that people want to only walk to work and that we're seeing an urbanization and a rhetoric around home ownership rates are going to plummet. And we had the likes of very, very influential people saying that the U.S. is in a secular decline on home ownership. So the builders from a psych- uh, sentiment perspective, their psychological perspective were very apprehensive. So really the machine didn't get really started in any kind of significant way. I'd call it till 15, 2015 to really build. And when they started to build, they were met with a lot of resistance from municipalities that just weren't equipped to approve land and get entitlements through the system. And they had a labor shortage. So they were actually builders in many cases that wanted to build, couldn't get the ingredients to get through the pipeline, the amount of lots that they would have liked to. And that's been a log jam that's actually continued to really constraint the ability to grow faster than call it high single to low double digit unit growth. And therefore, you're right, it does compound the risk that we're building up a lot of uh, pent up demand. A lot of frustrated buyers, a lot of people that are renting homes that are probably looking to to increase space as they are married with a toddler and one on the way. And um, if they don't get some bigger houses, they're going to wind up divorced. So there's a lot of people that are sitting in apartments and and or living with in-laws that would like to have units out there that they could buy, but there's just not availability, especially at the entry level. Right. I want to pause and thank one of our great new sponsors, Stessa. You know, Stessa is an essential and really cool tool that every growing real estate investor needs. You know, we've all been there. We're overwhelmed trying to manage and track multiple properties. We're juggling multiple bank accounts, and we're trying to verify how much money we're actually making at the end of the month. And if you're like me, you're probably spending a lot of time inside of a spreadsheet or even with QuickBooks trying to track everything. Well, Stessa lets real estate investors automate all that busy work so you can focus on growing your portfolio. And it ensures tax time is a breeze and lets you see all your properties and the key performance metrics all in one central dashboard. This is really cool. I can't tell you how long I've been wanting a tool like this. And Stessa is exactly what that tool should be. So just take a few minutes, add your properties, link your accounts, and your income and expenses all update automatically. It's really cool. It was built by real estate investors for real estate investors. So here's the deal. To learn more and get started with a free account, go to stessa.com slash P-R-E-I. That's stessa, S-T-E-S-S-A dot com slash P-R-E-I. Well, with all that pent-up demand, we're still, at least the markets that we're in and that I research, we're seeing slowing price appreciation. That doesn't mean negative or no appreciation, but we're seeing it slow in many, if not most markets around the U.S. So this is a very general question, but in general terms, do you expect home prices to continue to rise or do you think that this slowing price appreciation is the trend for the foreseeable future? We think home prices will slow. Uh, the rate of growth will slow. They'll still increase. This year, they're up probably about 55 to 6%. And that's following, again, robust inflation that's been that or higher since 2012. So I think what we're expecting is that home prices could decline and call it 4%. Maybe even there'll be more pressure than that. And the reason why we don't think we'll see further deceleration is that if you actually look at the level of inventory available, units available for sale, and we think about it in two languages we speak to is inventory available for sale as a percent of the number of households in the United States. And that you can go back and look 30 years plus, and we are at pretty much record low inventories. So demand is significantly outstripping the available inventories that are listed for sale. And even some of those units that are listed 
are obsolete or in less desirable locations. So I think it's really even understating the constraints. If you actually look at that, dividing it by price point, it tells a little bit of a different picture. If you think about what the realtors in the industry and real estate talk about, they talk about a normalized market is about a six-month supply of inventory. Right. Um, I don't know if that's the right number that's really truly normal, but six months has at least been the rule of thumb would be a balanced market where you don't see appreciation and you don't see deflation. When you go below six months, you have pricing power and it's a seller's market. You go above six months, it's a buyer's market and you see deflation. If you look at entry level, the month supply is right now about 2.7 months. As you move up, first time buyer is called three and a half. By the time you get to luxury and we define luxury at called the top 5%, you're closer to a nine to 10 month supply. And we are seeing pressure um, at that luxury price point and some significant pressure from, let's say the 2014 peak in home prices for luxury. And that, by the way, even if you bought in 2000, if you tried to sell in 2018, but you bought in 2012, you'd probably still make money because the price appreciation from 2012 to 2014 was double digit per year, more than north of 20% in some of those cities like New York and Miami. But if you bought in 14, you're late 14, let's say, you would probably see price deflation of 20, 30% in New York City right now. So there's no question, it depends on when you bought. But the constraints at the rest of the bread and butter of the United States, interestingly, we don't think about markets in absolute prices because in Cleveland, where I live, which is a longer story, but we'll just say $130,000 is an entry level priced home and luxury starts at say 600,000. Every market's different. If you go into New York and the suburbs, you're looking at probably 900 to a million dollars as an entry level home and the same thing in the California markets. And you're at north of call it four to five million for luxury. So because every market has its own bookends, what is very difficult to say, well, how much of the housing market is at risk because luxury is seeing that deflation. So we tried to simplify it by just saying roughly about 15% of homes in the United States that are listed for sale are over a half a million. So the bread and butter of the US is still below a half a million, which is still pretty, in our minds, pretty healthy. But right now, things are starting to slow. And I think a lot of it is sticker shock with rates moving up, the robust price appreciation we've seen, and consumers that are concerned that may have missed an opportunity to buy, especially because their memories are long from the Great Recession, and they're worried about buying at peak prices right now. So psychologically, there's been definitely a negative impact as rates have spiked. We see a pause, and that's leading to uh, slower overall activity in the markets right now. Yeah. And that certainly emphasizes the point that every market is local. This is why I don't like these questions of how is the real estate market doing? Because the question I ask is, which real estate market are you talking about? Right. So I'm sure the baby boomers and the millennials certainly play into these trends and certainly by price point. I would imagine that millennials are looking for entry-level homes, whereas baby boomers might be looking to downsize. But here's an interesting statistic. There's roughly 78 million baby boomers in the country, plus or minus, depending on whose numbers you're looking at. And ARP did a survey not too long ago, and they discovered that 87% of baby boomers said that they actually want to stay in the homes that they're in upon retirement. I don't know how that affects housing markets, but aren't baby boomers downsizing into smaller homes or rentals, or is that just a myth? Well, I think that there are definitely people that would like to downsize. There's some constraints around that, their ability to actually execute on that dream, one of which is that they have to sell their home 
and have enough equity to buy another home and find it in a location that they want. And that would literally be where their kids want to visit them or their grandchildren are close enough. So, but just stepping back for a moment, if you go back and look at what people do at different ages in their life, you know, you look at a 20 to call it 25 year old, they're going to be moving 50% of them are moving a year. So of that cohort, they're moving 50% of the time, as opposed to when you get to, let's say over 50, only 6% actually will move in that age cohort. So what does that mean? That means as we age, the turnover of housing slows because we stay, we age in place. Right. So to me, that 87% is not surprising whatsoever. It's a little bit, in fact, we would have put the number closer to call it 95% would have chosen to stay and age in place. Um, just based on the stats that we've you looked at historically. So from a secular perspective, maybe there is an increase in people's willingness to downsize or move into urban markets at an accelerated pace. It's just not as big as people think it, I guess, in, anecdotally, they expect it to be. So if we look on the other side of the spectrum, away from baby boomers, and we look at millennials, personally, I believe the leading edge of the millennials are starting to move out of their parents' homes. Do you think millennials want to actually own homes or are they still spooked from the Great Recession of 2008? Oh, I think they definitely want to buy homes. In fact, there's been lots of surveys to support that. Most recently, Bank of America just did a survey that I think it was over 100,000 millennials said that 80% of them want to be homeowners as a priority. Uh, the question is, do they have the down payment? Right. Do they have the you know, ability to get approved mortgage approval? And can they actually find a home, a neighborhood they want to be in? But I think desire is there. We've seen a lot of statistics, including home ownership rates that have been ticking higher. We had four consecutive increases off a trough, and we're now at roughly called 64% home ownership rate. But the millennials are actually representing nearly 50% of all purchases of homes are actually done by millennials. And if you looked at a chart over the last four years, it looks like a hockey stick. So you've seen a big increase in mortgages that are from millennials sort of supporting that they do want to buy and they are buying. And by the way, they are leaving home, but it's still elevated relative to historical levels. So we think some of that is nurturing parents that let their kids stay post-college, <laughs> save money. Some people will call them helicopter parents and whatever you want to call it. But there's no question that people are staying, maybe living with their parents longer. And we may not get back to what historical trend lines have been, but we do think once they get married and start having a family, that really that lifestyle decision will dictate the need for single family shelter. Interesting stat that kind of blows people away is that when you're looking at how people live, which is more important than what mortgage rates are, anything really, it's lifestyle will determine the type of shelter they have. But when you look at people that are married with two children plus over 82% or 82% roughly of them live in a single family home. So if you think about millennials, and our numbers are close to yours, we call it 75 million millennials, the oldest in their early 30s, as they're now moving into marriage and family formation, you know, imagine the tailwind and the need for single family shelter if our numbers are right. And we think it's a very powerful tailwind that will keep the housing market elongated from the volume side of things. And as long as wages and employment are continuing to directionally go in the right way and confidence is high housing cycle should be next several years at minimum. The question is, can they afford it at what price is it? And so those are the questions that a lot of the investment communities are, investment community are asking. 
But clearly, if you're a married couple with a toddler and one on the way and you're living in 900 square feet, your decision is about needing more space. And then a question is, well, how much can I afford? And maybe you'll buy a smaller home or a home that has less bells and whistles, but that lifestyle need is going to drive you to that single family shelter from, let's say, a multifamily shelter, in our opinion. Right. I've always had mixed feelings about the millennials because I believe that leading edge, the older millennials are starting families and they're the ones that are moving out and wanting to buy homes. But I personally, I think there's a bulk of those millennials that do want to leave their parents' homes. They want the independence and they want to live somewhere, but they're not ready to buy or they don't want to buy because they want that freedom of being able to be mobile and get around, whether it's community to community or city to city and get up and go. And I think that's good news if it's true for us as real estate investors, because that millennial pool is so large, they're going to need good quality rental housing stock, which we do provide. And I just have my eyes and my targets set on that bell curve of millennials out there that don't want to start a family, at least not yet, because I've heard that they're wanting to start families later in life compared to generations of of the past. So I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true. I don't know what you've heard, but I think the millennial market is, is a good market. I definitely, we've definitely seen a shift in delaying marriage and family formation. And, you know, one of the types of shelter, when I mentioned 82% single family, that's not distinguishing whether they own it or rent it. So today about 13% of households actually rent a home. And that's up from roughly 10% from pre-recession, Great Recession. So we've seen a significant increase. A lot of the people that lost their home to foreclosure went across the street and rented the same size home for half the the monthly payment. (laughs) So there's no question that the single-family rental market is a big part of shelter out there. Right now, it's very, very constrained. Occupancies are north of 95% and rents are inflating at, call it a 3 to 5% annualized rate. So, you know, even looking for a single family rental is not necessarily easy to find that. The multifamily market, which I think the first time you leave home, typically the perception is you're going to move into a apartment. There's a lot of supply in that market that continues to get leased up and you're seeing decelerating levels of rent growth, but there's a multi-decade work in progress supply pipeline coming predominantly in the urban core. And so I think renters are going to get some sweetheart deals as that supply gets delivered and labor and municipality and development constraints have elongated the pipeline, but there's going to be a lot of supply hitting the rental market and multifamily over the next, call it one to two years, that is going to make it a more consumer friendly choice on the rent side, I think. So just to be clear, when you say multifamily or multi-unit, are you talking above residential four units? In other words, like small, medium-sized apartments? Yes. Yeah. So basically above four units, correct. So two to four units is not multifamily. And so we see that markets predominantly in the high rise urban core and what we call class A and suburban class A is where there's been this wall of capital. Maybe many of your listeners have benefited from the strength of the rental market as tight as it was. Oh yeah. There's a significant pipeline and there's still a lot of money chasing this asset class and funds rate being basically raising funds to go ahead and buy more of this type of asset. So I call it drinking the Kool-Aid a bit on the multifamily, especially when you look at, if you look at the number of 20 to 34 year olds, there's no question the percent of people in that age cohort, the population over the past two decades 
We've seen an acceleration of people that are in the age 20 to 34 year olds. It's been a sweet spot that's really supported the need for more apartments. But as we go out in the next five to 2025, 2030, the number of 20 to 34 year olds are actually going to decline in absolute numbers. Whereas flip side, the number of 35 to 44 year olds, which had been down year over year negative until the last five years, it's going to see a nice increase, a pretty strong increase in the number of people in those cohorts. So where multifamily has been hot and it's been the right asset class, we're going to be seeing that swing. And we think it's going to be single family that's going to be significantly in favor. And that's where the capital should be going right now, as opposed to in multifamily. And valuations are very rich in, in apartments right now. They're yes very expensive levels relative to history and single family not cheap necessarily to develop, but comparatively, it's it's a bargain. Yeah. Cap rates have been compressed. It's tough to find even a six cap in an apartment these days. And you see urban class A with a four cap. In some cases, even we've seen sub four caps. So everything you just said in the last two minutes is very exciting. It's very bullish for us as real estate investors that are focused on the the single family duplex fourplex space because it just sounds like there's this pent up demand that's it's it's almost like a boomerang effect. We're we're gonna have growing demand back into that section or that sector. And I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the trend that you're really painting the picture. Yeah, and I think the sentiment has been improved in terms of the rhetoric around people only want to walk to work. You're not hearing that as much, and you see homeownership rates are ticking higher. I bet you in five years from now, it's going to be housing and homeownership will be the rage again, and people are going to recognize that we're going to continue to see extremely favorable tailwinds to generate good returns for people that got in early into the single family market. And I think the rental single family market is going to be a very attractive place to be too. And the cash on cash returns are already very compelling. The challenge is that there's not a lot of inventory. I mentioned the constraints on inventory. And so we're actually seeing some developers developing to rent locally in my neighborhood. And I'm in, call it the A ring of a Northeast Ohio, Cleveland suburb. I was talking with one of the leading brokers here, Howard Hanna, and there's this right around five, 10 minutes from my house, there's like 30 units that are attached townhome and a few single family rental homes that you can rent for 3000 a month. And the first phase pretty much got leased up within a few weeks. So it was really amazing that the demand for that product was as strong as it was. But I think that goes back to your point about flexibility and maybe people that haven't started families yet. They even had empty nesters that were downsizing and looking to have more flexibility that didn't want to have being weighed down by ownership and couldn't find something on the for sale side that they really wanted. So I think it's an interesting segment of the overall shelter market, but it's constrained just like the for sale market is. Yeah. My friend MC Lobsher, the host of Cashflow Ninja podcast and president of Producers Wealth, is on a mission to help you achieve financial independence as soon as possible. He achieves this by integrating the infinite banking concept and real estate investing to increase your financial efficiency and recapture cash flow that you're not even aware you're losing. MC shares the number one strategy investors use in his holistic wealth creation course at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. It's interesting you mentioned that. We just had a call this morning with one of our builders in Florida. We're now offering new construction homes and duplexes in three or four Florida markets. And one of the things that we were talking about is how demand and sales have picked up. I mean, it's very brisk for new construction homes. 
And I think there's been years of pent-up demand for new housing. What's interesting, though, is you know, why has the new construction market been so slow to recover? Is it because of financing and credit, or is it something else? Well, first, I would just comment that's interesting, and I'll come to your question, is that Zillow did a survey in 2017, 13,000 consumers, 160 questions. And the one that stood out to me is the number one consideration for a millennial to buy a home is they want it to be new and they want amenities, which I can definitely see my three children saying they want amenities, they want brand new. <laughs> they don't want it's the do it for me crowd, not do it myself. So that is a backdrop for why new construction, I think, is going to continue to do extremely well. But the reason it's been as maybe slower out of the box, out of the gate, as I mentioned earlier, has really been builders' initially reluctance, not feeling confident enough that they could see the demand there. Because again, the rhetoric was so much around home ownership rates are going to be under pressure and people want to rent, they want flexibility. So that kept them on the sidelines and not pursuing more aggressively development. But then when they tried to develop, there was constraints around just getting land developed through the pipeline and then labor constraints on being able to go vertical. So that's been a a regulator for an industry that's historically been a boom-bust industry. So it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's put some guardrails around their ability to grow. And that's why we kind of look at growth rates in that 8 to 12% range and not likely to go above that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just elongates the cycle. Wow. That's interesting you say that. I mean, clearly, I've seen the build-to-rent model picking up steam over the last probably two years. I mean, it's nothing new. It's just something that's been around and now it's become more of an interest to investors and builders. Well, it's more of an interest because there's a track record. There's two public equities that are showing the returns and the overall cash flows. And so you see there's some type of business model. You can actually see that it works. But I do think that it's an industry that's been around for decades. And like I said, it was 10% of all households. So The difference today is it's not a sleepy industry. Now you've got institutional investors that are professionalizing the industry with technology, with 24-7 call centers. They're requiring that these homes are upgraded and they're obviously getting the facelift needed and it's more competitive than it was historically where a landlord, you know, if your plumbing was not working, it might be a few days before you hear back from your landlord. What consumers are demanding today is at a much higher level of professionalism. And I think that's making the overall industry see a upgrade in the perception around that asset class. So looking at that from the other side of the spectrum, we talk about flippers and whatnot. Has there been or, or what has been the impact, if any, on the real estate market from all these flipping shows on TV? There's increased interest in flipping houses or even investors just buying, fixing, and then renting. Has there been an impact? thing because the age of the housing stock is close to 44 years old. And if you're east of the Mississippi and in the Northeast, or depending on what market, well into the 50, 60 year old stock. And a lot of people that may want to buy homes just can't afford to buy those homes and then spend the extra incremental dollars to fix them up. So I think the flippers serve a purpose, are basically creating an opportunity for people to buy homes that otherwise wouldn't have the capital. Because when you're buying a home, you right now can't mortgage the remodeling costs. So I think that there's some speculation that that's a product offering that might come to fruition. But as of right now, it's sort of a separate cost to you relative to the mortgage. So I think they do serve a purpose. And I think it's enabled a needed uplift or facelift for an aging stock. The one challenge we'll have with existing homeowners today that we continue to see what we talked about aging in place. So more people 
choose to age in place. But when they do try to sell their homes, there's a big disconnect between what they think their home is worth and what consumers are willing to pay for it. And so what you'll hear from people is like, well, I just redid my bathroom or I just redid the kitchen. And you were like, well, when? They're like 2009, you know, and you're like, oh my God, that's almost 10 years ago. It's right. <laughs> today you have a lot of homes that are north of 20 years old. In fact, if you look at the number of listings in the United States, about 60% that are listed are at least 20 years old or older. So a home that's 20 years old doesn't have, it's not a smart home for sure. It's probably got lower ceilings or boxy. People want open floor plans. They want Wi-Fi certified, whether it's Alexa, smart home, Google. It's not a match for what consumers want. So that's going to be a challenge. And actually, therefore, the flippers should continue to do well, Is in my opinion. I think it's still a good business that has a long life to it ahead. And we need the inventory. I mean, the bulk of what we've been selling yeah. since... 2010 has been completely refurbished homes in well-established mature neighborhoods, which have strong rental demand. And that's great. That's what we want. But there was no new construction product for the longest time. So we didn't have a choice. There was just a lot of housing stock that needed to be renovated and put back on the market as what we call a turnkey rental. Exactly. Yeah. And I think inventories are going to remain more constrained, not just from aging in place, but rather startling stat is that if you think about where mortgage rates right now, call it right below 5%. I mean, we've had uh, the bond market rallying today. So just let's say it's four and three quarters to 5%. Mortgage rates are not transferable. So a lot of people have mortgage rates well below that, the current levels. In fact, I believe it's 80% of all mortgage holders in the United States have a mortgage rate below 5%. So when you think about the fact that people are starting to look at the risk that mortgage rates are going to go even higher than they are right now, it could actually be another impediment for them to sell, which would further constrain the available supply in the marketplace. So another thing that headwind on inventories staying low would be arguably another reason home prices can still continue to rise, as well as that need for the flippers and for rental stock. Yeah, interesting. Do you have a prediction on mortgage rates? I know it's a crystal ball question. No, but... we don't predict that. We use the <laughs> But there's obviously, if the economy is doing well and interest rates are moving up, I think that the consumer affordability today is still um, actually pretty favorable. It's below what we call normal affordability for an entry-level buyer. We think about what's normal affordability. If you just took the median existing home price and you looked at what percent of your gross income goes to the mortgage and interest and the insurance payment. And so historically, that's been about 40% of your gross single income household. Sure. And right now we're kind of running at about 37%. So we're still below what it's been historically. Mortgage rates would have to go to five and three quarters before we get to that normal trend line. Not to say that 40 is the right number, but that's what it's been for sort of normalized over 30 years. And the credit box, which has been almost back to normal, when you go back to 2012 and banks weren't willing to lend, and we kind of look at a we do a mortgage survey that is pretty robust sample size of about 15% of all mortgage originators in the country. And zero is you can't, you can fog a mirror and get a mortgage on underwriting criteria. And a hundred is you can't do anything. You can never get a mortgage. And so 50 call it normal. In 2012, you're at roughly an 80. And we're now approaching, call it 50 or at 54 on our scale. And so the credit availability has improved And because refis have gotten pounded and are plummeting, we're seeing a lot more competition for every incremental purchase mortgage 
So you're seeing even more favorable credit that's going to be accessible to consumers. So affordability is actually still good and the credit is very reasonable and improving. I think that what happens with the consumer is they see they get sticker shock. And we look at our builder surveys or our broker surveys. We think there's really a pause going on in the marketplace, but I think that that eventually the consumer just digests the higher rates and thinks about what their lifestyle dictates. But right now, it's uh, rates are definitely throw a dart right now. And the answer would be most people think it's going higher, not lower. So a segue question, you're talking about affordability, but I think that was a snapshot of where we are today. And we've seen very strong home price appreciation or inflation. Over the last five, six years, particularly in Washington State, Nevada, California, Oregon, and even Idaho, going forward, where do you feel we're going in terms of affordability in general terms? Well, I think that it's a headwind today because there's we still expect home prices to rise, albeit at a decelerating pace because the inventories are still very constrained. Okay. All eyes on inventories because we are seeing in places that you mentioned, inventory starting to creep up. But I think as rates are moving up, it depends on how much rates move up and also wage growth. So affordability, I think, is going to remain reasonable mm-hmm. as long as we don't see any spike on the braid environment from okay. here. I think we should see stability and people still, it's relatively favorable. So I'm not really worried about affordability unless we have something outside of where we are, a significant increase in rates. And then I think it would really be negative to the housing market. Hmm. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, that still sounds bullish for us as real estate investors. So it's an interesting trend. It's a good trend. Let's wrap things up. Last question. I almost don't want to ask you this question because I don't like to talk about the quote unquote housing market in general terms. I, I don't even like the question of how's the housing market because then I ask the question, well, you know, what market are you talking about? But in general terms, from an investment perspective, do you have an opinion on the best or worst housing markets? And I'm not necessarily referring to specific cities. They could be just areas or regions of the country. Do you have any commentary on where we as real estate investors should be focused? Well, I think that the coastal markets are where the risk would be that we may have overshot. So the home prices have gone up so fast, so quickly. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's supported by the lack of inventory and job growth. But markets like in the Southeast, in Texas, the Carolinas, I think Florida is well positioned, especially with tax reform, making it one of the winning states with SALT. Mm -hmm. I think the sort of Southeast and Southwestern markets should do well. Maybe even some Midwest market just have not seen the same price appreciation and assuming job growth remains positive. I worry most about the high income percentile coastal markets where prices have been up so much. And and Seattle and Portland, you throw in there, Arizona, Nevada are still, I think, relatively attractive. I think Colorado, we look at affordability and actually Denver screened as one of the least affordable markets. Right. Uh, there's interesting though, when you kind of look at history, what you can't take into consideration, you mentioned it earlier, is the consumer who has a lot more mobility. So when I was talking about the Denver market to someone locally there, they said, yeah, but we have so many inbound people from California that look how unaffordable California is. It makes Denver look like a bargain. Right. So <laughs> I think it's hard for us to pinpoint where the population migrates to, but that also is variables that will really dictate the strength of a housing market. Yeah, for sure. Good insight. Ivy, you're a wealth of knowledge and I love reading your articles. So tell our listeners how they can find you or your website, maybe 
tell us what the uh, Z report is all about because uh, it's something that I certainly appreciate and maybe we should just educate our audience. Sure. Well, the Z report and thank you for the plug is a biweekly report has about eight articles uh, could be read in 10, 15 minutes with supporting charts. And each article is pretty topical across the whole ecosystem of housing, whether you're a broker or you're a real estate developer, mortgage company, building product manufacturer, anyone in the ecosystem, I think would find a high level perspective. Zellman and Associates, you mentioned it's a research firm that does a lot of proprietary research, very significant survey work that we do monthly and quarterly. So we have some real good correlations that we derive from these surveys and can triangulate the different surveys to really create a full sort of mosaic of what the trends are. Zellman Associates is just, uh, our website is zellmanassociates.com. And the Z Report, again, you can learn about it there. You can also uh, email Kim at zellmanassociates.com for more information, but we appreciate it. And we think that everyone should be reading it if they want to be knowledgeable. And knowledge is number one in every aspect. Definitely. Yeah, we've, and we have a trial. So if they wanted to trial the Z report before committing, it's something that will allow them to get a flavor for the biweekly report. That's right. Forgot about that. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for all that, Ivy. It's been a pleasure and an honor having you on. And thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. And keep up the great work. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Friends, if you have not subscribed to this podcast, hit that subscribe button and get notified every week when we come out with a new episode. Also, remember, if you are thinking about real estate investing, expanding your existing portfolio, looking to grow, or just trying to figure out this whole real estate investing thing, contact my team. Just fill out the contact form on our website. Get your free strategy session. All of our investment counselors are here to help you out. So just go to noradarealestate.com. You can check that link in the show notes, and we're going to help you out. We're wanting to put you on the right track and get you moving in the right direction, and growing that portfolio. Also, if you're looking for a primer or just something to help further educate you, there's a free report, a guide on our website you can download. Actually, on both of our websites, it's called The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. Download it for free. Just go there now. Go to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com or NoradaRealEstate.com and download it. It's a PDF. You can put it on your phone. You can put it on your iPad, your notebook, whatever it may be. And, you know, that's about it. And other than that, we'd love it when you put in a rating and review on our on iTunes. We've got nearly 800 five-star reviews, and we really appreciate that. So just help us spread the word. Just click that button. Give us a rating review. I really appreciate it. I'm thanking you in advance. Other than that, thanks again for listening. We will see you on the next episode. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.